It's good to have you all here tonight. Genesis 45 is where we're going to be at tonight. Genesis chapter 45. Sunday we were talking about facing giants in our life out of the book of Hebrews. And I think one of the giants that sometimes we face is the subject we're going to talk about tonight, which is forgiveness. The willingness to forgive others and the willingness to be forgiven or to accept forgiveness. It's one of those things that sometimes we obviously struggle with. And here in Genesis chapter 45, we see that Joseph is now at a place where he can express his forgiveness to his brothers. But I want to make this very important point here. Joseph had already forgiven his brothers, I believe, years before he expressed it. That what you see here in Genesis 45, when his brothers and and he are reconciled and restored in their relationship, that was the culmination of both Joseph's forgiveness and their repentance. Because we must separate the act of forgiving someone of injuring, harming, or hurting us, and the relationship itself being reconciled or restored. Sometimes that never happens. Sometimes trust is broken in a relationship, and that's never, that's never brought back. That's never gained again. But that doesn't mean that you and I, for those who have hurt us, we can't forgive. Because it's primarily about us letting go of and releasing what other people have done to us. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean we ignore it. It doesn't mean we, we pretend like it didn't happen. But what we are simply doing, in a sense, is placing them in the hands of God and letting God deal with them and the consequences that He wants to bring about in their life and that we personally are not trying to, to hurt them back or seek vengeance or revenge or whatever upon them. It's the way that you and I can negate becoming angry and resentful and bitter in our lives over the things that other people do to us. And so I believe that Joseph here forgave his brothers for them selling him into slavery and all of that years before this. But again, the relationship was only restored because Joseph saw that his brothers had truly changed. And that there was a change of heart in his brothers that then allowed this relationship to be fused back together again and the trust to begin to be repaired again in this relationship. Now before we go down through Genesis 45 tonight, I do want to start with this. How could Joseph forgive? How can you and I forgive others for the things that they do to us? We are commanded to forgive as God's children. 
Jesus said that we are, as his followers, to forgive others as God has forgiven us. And so, therefore, it's not optional. It's something that we need to to do and learn to do. But how can we be in a place where we are willing to forgive others? I think that we have the answer here in Genesis 45. Notice four times in this chapter that Joseph, as he's explaining things to his brothers, that he reminds them that from his perspective, the reason he could forgive them is because he lived with an eternal perspective. He lived believing that God was sovereign, that God was in control, that God was the one who defined his life and not his brothers or not anyone else. God would have the last word in his life. And when you and I live with that kind of a perspective, that enables us to be able to forgive others. Notice, first of all, in verse 5, because this phrase he repeats four times in this chapter. He says in verse 5, For God, at the end of verse 5 of chapter 45, For God sent me ahead of you. Then down in verse 7, God sent me ahead of you. Verse 8, so now it is not you who sent me here, but God. And finally in verse 9, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. See, from his perspective, he's not, he's not taking his brothers off the hook. He's going to acknowledge what they did to him. But what he is saying is, but my brothers aren't sovereign. My brothers were not in control of the situation. My brothers were not the one that had the last word. My brothers were not the one that defined what happened to me and how my life turned out. And when you and I live with that kind of perspective that Joseph had here, it it enables us to not go through life as a victim, but as a victor. It enables us to be able to forgive others because we see that God is the one who's going to maybe take what others do and give a purpose to it and and be able to use it so that we're not in the hands of other people. We're, we're, you know, they're not the ones that ultimately define us. It's God. And so he had a, he had a life that was centered on God. He had a life that trusted in God, ultimately. He had a life and and a theology that believed, again, that God was in control, God was on the throne, God was sovereign, and that even though his brothers did these things to him, God ultimately was working to bring about his purposes as well, and he was trusting in God to bring this all about. And to bring out something good, something purposeful, out of the pain that he had endured. That's the way he saw his life. And that's the way you and I have to see things as well. Because it again is from that foundational perspective that then we can forgive others, that we can move on and not be trapped in the hurts and the pain and the injuries and the wrongs that others do to us. Maybe here tonight, there's someone who's been struggling with forgiving someone. 
of what they have done. And all I would ask is that you consider the Word of God and the perspective that Joseph had that might encourage you and enable you to be able to move past that giant, if you will, in your life of unforgiveness. Because many Christians that struggle in life, it can sometimes be brought back to their unwillingness, our unwillingness at times to not forgive those who've harmed us or hurt us in some way. And again, very easily we can, we can build up that resentment and anger and bitterness and it's not a, not a pretty place to be in. We need to let it go. We need to set it free. We literally need to release it, which is what the word forgive means. And let God take care of the people who've hurt us and be able to move on. That was Joseph. Now notice here, if you've been following the story up to this point, you will notice that Joseph has given his brothers these tests. And they have proven that in their heart they have changed, which allows now and opens up the possibility of restoration and reconciliation of the relationship. So you'll notice then we begin in chapter 45, verse 1, with Joseph actually reacting in a very emotional way to the words of Judah in chapter 44 and actually seeing the fruit of repentance in his brothers and that his brothers have really changed. And we talked about that last week predominantly. And, and our main point last week was God can change people's hearts. God can transform lives. God can change people. He changes us if we allow Him to, and He changes others. And, and Joseph's brothers had truly changed. They weren't the same men now that they were 22 years before when they sold Him into slavery. There, they only cared about themselves, and they didn't care about their brother Joseph or how they hurt their father or anything else. And now they've come full circle and now they truly care about each other. They see the connection that their life has with others, that they're all in this together. And now they're willing to even stand up for their younger brother, Benjamin. And they're willing to do it as a group. Unlike what they did 22 years before. Well, when Joseph hears all this, notice the Bible says Joseph was no longer able to control himself. He could not hold it together any longer. He could not restrain himself before all of his attendants. So he cried out, make everyone go out of my presence. Joseph was now calling for privacy. And he wanted no one to remain with him when he made himself known to his brothers. Why did he do this? I think there's several reasons here. But a main one here that even deals with forgiveness and being sinned against and all of that, I think, is this. Joseph is modeling something very important for us here. Sin and wrong and all of that that's done between individuals needs to be kept to those individuals. In other words, the Egyptians and Joseph's servants and Joseph's attendants didn't have any any skin in the game. 
This wasn't between them and Joseph's brothers. This was between Joseph and his brothers. And so it needed to be dealt with just between Joseph and his brothers. So many times, one of the areas where we go wrong in is we start to bring in all these other people into issues that only concern us and someone else or someone else and someone else. And the more people that you get involved, then people begin to take up offenses for this person and that person. And pretty soon, can I say, that's how you have whole groups of Christians then fighting against each other. That's how you even have schisms and divisions and and all of that, even in churches, where churches split, all because it started out with maybe a fight between or a disagreement between two Christians and ends up including all these other people. And Joseph here is giving us a great example. No one else was involved with this. This was between him and his brothers, and it needed to stay that way. And secondly, I'm going to get a little ahead here, but you'll see where this fits in later. I think the other reason he does this is because the Bible says that when we love others, we are willing to cover a multitude of sins by our love for them. And that that doesn't mean that we excuse it, but what it does mean is this. Joseph knew that in God's plan that eventually his family was going to be down here in Egypt with him. And, And he didn't want what had happened to him by his brothers to be known by Pharaoh and the other Egyptians because he felt that that might taint the way they looked at his family, the way they treated his brothers and all of that. So again, he didn't want to make that public. He wanted that just between him and and his family. It was a family matter and it needed to be dealt with that way. And you and I would do well that when we have issues with others or others have issues with us, that we keep them between us. I love the verse in the book of Proverbs. It says that one who gets involved in an issue that is not really something that they were a part of, it's like grabbing a dog by the ears. And uh, dogs don't like to be grabbed by the ears not going to be a good thing. And so we have to be careful that the relationships and issues and things that we work through, that we are truly to be a part of that and that we're not getting invited into something that we shouldn't be invited into and be a part of. Notice it also says he wept loudly. And in the Hebrew, it means he wept continually and loudly. He was wailing so much. He was emotionally overcome. Again, 22 years of sort of pent up emotion. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like Joseph, where maybe someone hurt you very deeply and you had to deal with these emotions for years and years and you had to forgive them, but maybe now God was opening up a door of some type of reconciliation. Maybe the relationship would never be what it was. Maybe it even shouldn't be what it was, but, but there was at least going to be some level of restoration and reconciliation in the relationship. You can imagine that the emotion that Joseph felt, especially when it relates to family, as it did to Joseph. And it just, it started to just bubble 
and overflow. In fact, so much the Bible says the Egyptians heard it. As much as he kept what was said in private, he couldn't keep his weeping and wailing and emotions private because the Egyptians heard it. In fact, then they reported it to Pharaoh who heard about it. And now I want you to put yourself not in Joseph's sandals. I want you to put yourself now in verse 3 in Joseph's brother's sandals. What would it have been like for Joseph's brothers to be standing there wondering, is this governor of Egypt, is he losing it? Is he gone mad or are we in big trouble and don't, why is this guy so emotional? And then Joseph says to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is our father still alive? Now notice, his brothers, which I don't probably blame them, says they could not answer him because they were dumbfounded before him. They couldn't speak. In fact, you don't hear Joseph's brothers speaking anything until verse 15. It's like, Ah, and you can imagine out of all the people that could have revealed themselves at this point to them, probably the last person on earth they would have thought was Joseph. And yet here he is. They hadn't seen him for 22 years, or at least they thought they hadn't seen him for 22 years. Didn't know what happened to him. And they know what they did to him. And now Joseph is actually the governor of Egypt standing before them. Up to this point, he spoke to them in Egyptian. Now he's speaking to them in Hebrew. And he says, oh, and it says too that they were dumbfounded. It, it, it's a word that means they were disquieted, obviously. I'm sure their stomach was doing flip-flops. They were dismayed. They were very much disturbed. Probably a little, a little terrified. Because I'm sure maybe the first thought is, if this really is our brother Joseph, what's he going to do to us? Like, he's finally sort of carried us all the way along, and now... The hammer's going to fall. I can only imagine what they were doing as they were standing there before Joseph. Then Joseph says to his brothers, come closer, which implies that they were cringing and sort of cowering away from him. As soon as he reveals who he is, they're, they're not stepping forward like, oh, Joseph. Or, they're like, they're stepping back. That's their first reaction. Because they know what happened and what they did. But he wants them to draw near and approach because, again, he sees, again, through his willingness to forgive and through their repentance that there can be some kind of reconciliation and restoration. There can be fellowship between him and his brothers that he hasn't enjoyed for years. And even though he had fellowship with them previously, it was sort of under false pretenses. They thought he was still the governor of Egypt. Now they're going to be able to actually have fellowship as family. They're actually going to be able to act like 
family. So the Bible says they came near. And then he says, again, sort of to reassure them, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. So again, he's not whitewashing what they did. He's saying, yes, you sold me as a slave. You sold me as property into Egypt. No denying that. But now notice what he says. But do not be upset. The word means to be grieved or in pain with oneself. And do not be angry with yourselves. Do not be enraged or displeased with yourselves because you sold me here. In a sense, what Joseph is saying with these words is, accept my forgiveness. Don't let, again, what you did to me keep us from reconciling and seeing our relationship restored. Get rid of the guilt, get rid of the shame, because God has greatness and a great plan for you all too, as well as He did to me. And if you carry this guilt and shame of what you have done to me, you will miss out. God wants to set you free. You're going to be the leaders of the twelve tribes of Israel. You need to be able to move past it. And so let me stop here at this moment and say, let's look at the other side of this. Maybe there's someone here tonight that needs to truly forgive and let go and release something that someone has done to them and trust God that He'll take care of them and whatever consequences God wants to bring into their life, but that's not something you're going to dwell on or focus on or even try to bring about. But then there might be someone else here tonight that you have never forgiven yourself, or as I, I'd rather say it this way, you've not yet accepted God's forgiveness of you, or maybe someone else's forgiveness of you, of what you've done. You've never been able to let that go and release it. It's been this little cloud that sort of has hovered above your life and your head for maybe weeks, months, or years. And God is saying to you tonight, I've forgiven you. I've let it go. I've released it. I, as the Bible says, have cast your sin into the depth of the sea. I don't dwell on it. I don't focus on it. Let's move on. And the only way that you and I can truly move on and experience all that God has for us, all the good things, is to be able to accept His forgiveness. And again, let's remember something. Forgiveness is something that is given freely and unconditionally. That's true of God and that should be true of us as well. See, that's why someone might not ask me to forgive them, but I don't need them to ask me to forgive them. They don't even need to acknowledge that they've done anything. Because that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is me letting go and releasing that to God and letting go of it and moving on, whether they ever acknowledge what they've done or ask for it or not. That's true forgiveness. Now again, that doesn't mean I might trust them. doesn't mean that we're reconciled. doesn't mean that we're restored. doesn't mean that our relationship is there or close or anything. But it does mean I have forgiven them. 
Because that's the way God forgives us. Have we acknowledged every sin we've ever done to God? No. In fact, there's probably sins that we won't even know we've done. That doesn't mean God hasn't forgiven just because we didn't ask for it and acknowledge it. Forgiveness is free and unconditional. And that's what Joseph is trying to get his brothers to see as well. I hope that if there's someone here tonight and you've had a really hard time and struggle in your life accepting God's forgiveness of something you've done, that you will once again be reminded that God has forgiven you in Jesus Christ. And you have been set free and released. And God has let it go. So you need to let it go. And set it free. And release it. And move on. Notice Joseph said, God, verse 5, sent me ahead of you to preserve life. And again, who got Joseph to Egypt? Was it his brothers or was it God? Well, Joseph would say it was both. His brothers were not absolved of their responsibility of selling him into slavery. And this is where human responsibility and the sovereignty of God can coexist as it does throughout the Bible. Because Joseph is basically saying, you're responsible because you did that deed to me and you sold me here. But guess what? God also had a plan. And He brought me down here as well. And what this reminds us of too, is something very important that hopefully encourages us even in and through our pain. And that is that Joseph is reminding his brothers That no matter what you and I go through, no matter what others do to us, that with God, there's always purpose in our pain. Our pain that we go through in life, the hurts, the wrongs, the injuries that others do to us, is never purposeless. If we will just trust God, be faithful to God, and look to Him, there's always purpose in our pain. And that's exactly what Joseph was acknowledging here. You you did me wrong, but God had a greater purpose. God actually sent me ahead of you. Because in God's plan, God knew that a famine was coming. And God wanted me in such a place in Egypt where not only could the Egyptian lives be spared, but where I would be able to spare the lives of my own family and preserve the line of the Messiah And the twelve tribes of Israel. God had it all planned ahead. Couple things. First of all, the word sent means literally to sow or to plant. And it is a reminder where does God want to sow you or plant you? Joseph acknowledged God wanted to plant me and sow me in Egypt for a while. That was where he wanted me to be. Where does God want you to be? And also we know from the life of Joseph that it's not where we are, it's who we are that's most important. Because we remember that even in Egypt, Joseph was fruitful. God blessed Joseph because it's not so much where we are as whose we are and who we are at the moment. 
And I love the fact that Joseph acknowledged God sent me ahead. Because again, it's a reminder that God is providential, He's sovereign, He knows what's coming before we do. And therefore, we also can trust God that in our lives, there are times where God is preparing us for what He knows coming, even though we don't. And that's where we have to trust Him. Because God can see all the way down the end. He sees the end and the beginning. He's the Alpha and the Omega. And therefore, there are times where we sometimes wonder, why am I here? And why does God have me doing this? And all this. And God might be preparing us for what He knows is coming that we don't know yet. But that's where we just look and trust to God and walk with Him every day. And again, the ultimate purpose, Joseph said, was to be a preserver of life. Literally a reviving even during the years of famine. He goes on to say in verse 6, For these past two years there have been a famine in the land, and for five more years there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. Therefore God, the sovereign God, Elohim is the word He uses there for God, sent me ahead of you to preserve you on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Literally a great escape. And God is a great deliverer. He's a God who allows us to escape. He's a God who parts Red Seas and allows His people to go through on dry ground. Never forget that your God is a rescuer. He's a deliverer. He's a Savior. So now it is not you who sent me here, but God. Verse 8. Two of the most important words in all the Bible. Verse 8. But God. Here's this circumstance, here's this thing, yeah, but God. Always remember, God has the last word. God is the one who's in control. God is sovereign. God is the one who defines things. And that's the way Joseph lived. He has made me as an advisor, the chief counselor to Pharaoh, lord or superintendent over all of Pharaoh's household, ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now go up to my father quickly and tell him, this is what your son Joseph says, God, the sovereign God, has made me Lord over all Egypt. Come down to me and do not delay. Don't tarry, don't remain. Because remember a couple weeks ago we said where Jacob especially was always so fearful that he was hesitant. And Joseph probably knew that about his father even though he hadn't seen him for years and been around. He knew that that's the way his father was even as a young boy. And so he's like, "Don't don't let father... Terry, get him down here quickly. Let's have a big family reunion. And then notice verse 10. You will live in the land of Goshen. It was a district in Egypt. And you will be near me, literally neighbor to me, next to me. You, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, and everything you have. And notice, they were to look to Joseph to be their provider. I will provide you with food there because there will be five more years of famine. The word provide means to sustain, to support, to support, to nourish. Joseph basically was going to be the shepherd of his own family. And at this point, he certainly was the spiritual leader in his family. He wasn't the oldest by far. In fact, he was one of the youngest. But he was the spiritual leader of his family. And God put him in that position Because God saw his heart and knew that with that great privilege and with that position and with that power, that Joseph would not abuse it. 
especially after all the training that Joseph went through. That Joseph would remain humble and that Joseph would use his privilege, his power, and his position to serve others, not to serve himself. Today we see people aspiring for leadership, even spiritual leadership. And yet many of them have motives of, I want to be a leader so that I can be served. And yet the Bible teaches us that true spiritual leaders are those who ascend to leadership so that they can serve others, not that they can be served. And following the example of Jesus Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He goes on to say in verse 11, Otherwise you would become poor, literally impoverished, you, your household, and everyone who belongs to you. You and my brother Benjamin can certainly see with your own eyes that I really am the one who speaks to you. How did Joseph truly convince his brothers that he was Joseph? I mean, obviously, he physically didn't look Anything like he did 22 years before. How did he convince them? I don't know. Maybe it was, you know, things that he had recalled from the family. I don't know. Maybe he actually showed his brothers that he was circumcised, which no Egyptian would be circumcised. I don't know what he did to convince his brothers. But he's saying, I really am Joseph. And then he says, tell my father about all my honor in Egypt. He's not doing this to brag or be prideful. The word honor here really means abundance or riches. He's trying to convey through his brothers to his father, I have the ability to take care of you. All the resources of Egypt are under my control. I will provide for you. Bring my father down here quickly. Then notice verse 14. He threw himself on the neck of his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. And then he kissed all his brothers and went over to them. And after this, his brothers talked with him. Finally, they went from uh, to they could speak again. By the way, the word kissed here. It's from a word in the Hebrew which means to fasten together. It's this beautiful picture again that, of what he, what he was seeing in the attitude of his own brothers throughout this time. Of They realized it wasn't about them as individuals. It was about the community. It was about, it was about joining and being tied together and knit together with others. And we talked about how God wants his people even today in the church to feel that way about one another. And that's the way Jacob's family was finally being restored to that, where they were all looking to be together and to be fastened together once again. So notice verse 16. We go from sort of this revealing or revelation of Joseph to his brothers to now hearing about the provision that is going to be theirs in the land of Egypt. It was reported, verse 16, in the household of Pharaoh that Joseph's brothers have arrived. And it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Now, why would this be? I believe it was because Pharaoh had such respect for Joseph and had grown to love Joseph so much that whatever made Joseph happy made Pharaoh happy. Now, this was very unusual. 
Most Egyptians would have never felt this way about a foreigner. But I think, again, this shows the kind of man that Joseph was and the kind of respect that he had gained throughout his years of service in Egypt. So much so that Pharaoh was happy, that Joseph was happy, and that he was finally reunited with his family. So notice what Pharaoh says to Joseph. Say to your brothers, do this. Load up your animals and go to the land of Canaan. Get your father and your households and come to me. Then I will give you the best land in Egypt. Oh my goodness. Unbelievable. Pharaoh is telling Joseph, when your family gets here, they're not going to be sent out to some corner somewhere in Egypt and just, you know, be in some, you know, mod- no, we're going to give them the best. Think God's in this? Do you see the hand of God in this? And it's a reminder of God's people, of people like Jacob and people like us would just trust God for His provision, for what God has for us and what God offers us is always better than what we can try to manipulate and, and control and bring about in our own power and strength. If we would just look to God, God will always have what's best for us out there. Even in a place like Egypt, And that was certainly true of Joseph's family. It meant the good things, the goodness of Egypt would be theirs. The choicest produce would be theirs. Then he says in verse 19, you are also commanded to say, do this, take for yourselves wagons or carts from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives. Now, this might not seem significant to us, but if you study this, you realize that in those days, Most, 99% of the people, when they were loading up possessions, they just simply loaded things up on a beast of burden. A donkey, a camel, or something like that. That was it. To have a cart or a wagon to haul things on, that that would be like today, us landing a C-130 transport plane somewhere in a remote jungle of tribal people. And saying, here, all that's on this plane is yours, type of thing. I mean, that... First of all, they'd be like, what? Never seen such a thing. I'm blown away. Something so big can carry so much. That's the context here. Wagons and carts now coming out of Egypt to the land of Canaan. Unbelievable. And then I love verse 20. Pharaoh says also through Joseph, don't worry about your belongings. For the best of all the land of Egypt will be yours. Literally it means, let your eyes... Look with, or excuse me, it, it means let not your eyes look with regret on your belongings back in Canaan. Don't, don't pine away for what you have. Look toward what God has for you down here. Now, obviously, that's not Pharaoh's perspective, but that's, that would be the people of God's perspective. It's sort of the picture that I get even with Lot's wife earlier in Genesis when she's saved out of Sodom and Gomorrah and the Bible says she looks back longingly and she's turned into a pillar of salt because her heart is back there. She thinks that what she's leaving is better than where she's going and where God has for her. And in a sense, that's what Pharaoh's saying even to Jacob. He's saying, don't look at what you have now and, and don't leave, leave that as, as regretting it. Think about 
what God has for you down here. We're going to give you the best. And that's what God wants his people to, to do and live by as well. If God is leading us somewhere, then God is saying this. Don't, don't think that you're leaving anything behind. Because where I'm leading you and to what I'm leading you to is always better than, than where you've been. So just continue to follow me and trust me because I'll always give you the best. If Pharaoh, a godless pagan ruler in this world, was willing to give the people of God his best out of his land, how much more will God give us his best? Isn't that what Jesus said? to his followers when he said, if you who are sinful are able to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those of you who ask him? God's always willing to give us his very best. So let's wrap it up here. The sons of Israel, verse 21, did as they said. They came, they got their wagons, they loaded them up. They took all of this stuff, which I won't take the time tonight to read since we're losing time here. And then notice verse 25. They went up from Egypt, came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. Jacob was stunned, literally numb, for he did not believe them. But when they related to him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to transport him, their father Jacob's spirit revived. It's literally a word that speaks about stirring up dying embers which are about ready to be extinguished. It was poor old Jacob. He had very little spiritual fire or life or vitality left in him. He had grown bitter and pessimistic and negative through all the things and losses of his life. He had stopped trusting and believing in God, but now this news comes to him and it starts to stir those coals again and he starts to get that fire back again. That's what God wants to do in people's lives. Even the people of God who've allowed their fire to sort of die out. God wants to bring something into our life to begin to stir up those dying embers that are almost extinguished. And then the Bible says, Israel said, enough, my son Joseph is still alive and I will go and see him before I die. Notice a very significant change in verse 27 and before this, they use the name Jacob, but then the testimony of faith in verse 28 comes from Israel, not Jacob. It's sort of similar to when Jesus met Simon, he said, this is who you are, but if you let me transform you and you follow me, you'll become Peter. And now we see even God is still changing Jacob because he goes from that, again, pessimistic, faithless, struggling person who knew God but had sort of left God by the side and now he's becoming a person of faith again. And he's beginning to believe again. And those spiritual embers are being stirred again. And he's becoming the Israel that God chose him to be. The leader of God's people that he wanted to be. Well, we'll pick it up here then in chapter 46 next week. Thank you for your patience.
Sorry, I ran over a couple minutes. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, what a fantastic story we have been able to be a part of here throughout these last chapters in Genesis. A story of Joseph's life, a story of his family, a story of forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration, a story of repentance. But most of all, Lord, it's a story about You. It's a story about who You are as God and who You are to us and who You want to be to us. And God, I pray tonight that if there's someone here who needs to forgive somebody in their life, that God, they would trust You enough to let that go and release them and release what they have done to them into Your hands. And to be able to move on in their life and not allow that to define their life. And God, I pray that if there's one here tonight that needs to accept forgiveness and be willing to move on in their life from something that they have done, that God, they would do that as well. God, help us to see tonight more than ever that You are sovereign. You are the God who is in control. You are a God who even can bring purpose in our pain. And you are a God who defines us and has the last word in our lives. God, help us to look to you and trust you. Help us to see tonight that you're not only a God who forgives and who restores and who revives. You are a God who provides. You give us your absolute best. Help us to trust you then to do that in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys, for being here. We'll see you next week.